Wonderful. Well, we are continuing our Eyewitness News series. We've had quite a long break because of the Christmas period, and now we're, we're getting back into that, and we are going to be in Mark chapter uh, 11 this evening, Mark chapter 11, and uh, we are asking the question, who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? And let me just read one verse. We're going to come back to it, Mark 11 and verse 27. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Uh, there's one question that I am uh, frequently asked as a uh, British person living in America. People often come up to me and they say, do you ever find yourself accidentally driving on the wrong side of the road? Um, this would be a problem. Uh, this could be dangerous for your health. We, of course, in England drive on God's side of the road, <laughs> the left-hand side. And uh, occasionally I, I uh, forget where I am. Um, but more recently, uh, uh, I had a, a bit of a dilemma. I wasn't actually driving on the wrong side of the road. Uh, I was in Reno driving a church van it's a long story, and I didn't realize that I was actually driving in the parking lane, which is never a good idea. And so uh, a policeman spotted me, and uh, he decided that he wanted to have a little chat with me. So I'm driving along completely oblivious, as I usually am. It's my chosen posture of life. And and uh, this policeman comes up behind me. Now, um, actually, this, I said recently, it was years ago, um, in England, it used to be that if the police wanted to stop you, they passed you, and then they had a little, little sign on the back of their, a light that lit up on the back of their car that said, stop. I mean, actually, it was Britain, so it actually said, please stop if you don't mind most awfully, you know, something, <laughs> something like that. No, it didn't, but they... The police car would pass you, they'd put the stop thing on. But you see, and I was expecting that to happen if the officer wanted to talk with me. So I'm driving along in the parking lane, he puts these red and blue flashing lights on, and I thought, oh, that's interesting, and carried on driving. <laughs> and uh, then, uh, uh, after about 20 seconds, he put his siren on too. So we got flashing lights, we got siren. And I thought, oh, that's nice. He's obviously keen to go somewhere. God bless him. And then finally, he spoke through his PA system. He's got lights. He's got siren. And he said through his PA system, sir, pull over now. And I felt led to pull over. <laughs> and uh, again, I didn't realize what you're supposed to do. Um, and so I jumped out of the car. How many know that's a really stupid thing to do? <laughs> and uh, indeed it was. And so the result of uh, this now, do you, do you have this? Whenever I'm driving, I can be driving uh, two miles an hour below the speed limit, but if a policeman comes up behind me, I immediately feel a sense of panic. And uh, uh, like, you know, uh, oh, oh no. In fact, I've been driving along with my wife and a police officer will come up behind and I, I just say, oh no. And she says, honey, it's okay, you're only doing two and a half miles an hour, you know, everything <laughs> is fine. But there is this sense of, here's someone in authority, I've probably done something wrong, I'm in 
trouble, intimidated by authority. This episode that we're looking at today is about authority. Authority. Authority is very important to Mark as he writes his gospel, especially as he contrasts the authority that Jesus had and has compared with the teachers of the law who were lacking in authority. And Mark wants us to know that Jesus has got authority, so he describes in Mark 1, Jesus' first sermon in the synagogue in Capernaum, and Mark tells us, he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. In Mark chapter 2, we read that Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. In chapter 3, authority to drive out demons. Chapter 6, he gives his disciples authority. Mark is interested in authority. And authority was on the minds of this little delegation, this gaggle of religious leaders, barons, who, who, uh, who came uh, to have this meeting with Jesus. Uh, this, this group of men, uh, most likely from the Sanhedrin, this 72-man council, who basically acted as the supreme court of Israel at that time. And now there's a clash because uh, they have come to Jesus. They think that they are the guys with the franchise. They think that the authority is, is theirs, and within three days, this same group, the Sanhedrin, will form a kangaroo court to hand Jesus over to Pilate. So this is a really big moment in Mark's gospel. There is an authority clash, and, and the question really is, who's actually in charge here? I think that there comes a moment in all of our lives when we need to answer the most fundamental question, and that is, who's in charge of my life? Is it, is it, is it me? Do I take responsibility for my destiny? Do I, do I make my decisions without consultation with God? Am, am I independently owned and operated? Or am I living under the authority of Jesus? And, and if I am, well, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to live under the authority of Jesus? It's easy to sing about it. It's easy to talk about it. But how do I practically embrace his authority? And, and that's what we're going to explore together today as we think about this. So, so here's the first thing about his authority. And that is that when the Son of God is in the house, there's going to be some disruption. When the Son of God is in the house, there's going to be some disruption. Let's look at chapter 11 again. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Uh, it's Tuesday morning. Uh, it's the third day that Jesus has spent in the temple area. Uh, Mark says he's, he's walking in the courts. Matthew tells us he's teaching people while he walks. Luke says he's proclaiming the good news. And I want you to picture this because there was a colonnade in the temple courts about 200 feet long with 40 feet high uh, Corinthian pillars. And it was probably in this area that Jesus 
was walking. And this gang of religious leaders say, who do you think you are? Why, why do you think you've got authority to do these things? Now, now question, what things? Any rabbi had permission and authority to teach in the temple court. So that wasn't the issue that they were primarily referring to. They're talking about all that has happened. He's cursed the fig tree. He's done this triumphal entry. More recently, he's turned over the tables of the money changers in the temple courts. And so they're saying, who do you think you are to come here and do this table-turning thing? What authority do you have to do that? It's so important that we realize that Jesus comes not just to bless our lives, but to reorder them. In fact, I want to overstate it, if I may, to bring wonderful disruption to our lives. He comes into the temple courts and he kicks the tables over. And one of the mistakes we can make is thinking that being a Christian is just about saying, okay, Jesus, just be there for me and bless my life. Be an extension to my life, but actually he wants to be the foundation of our lives. We have been set free in Christ, but biblically, Old Testament and New, freedom is never an open-ended thing. The people of the Old Testament were set free from slavery in order to embrace the rule, the reign, the kingship of God. And I'm challenged about this. Jesus wants to bring disruption. That means reordering my priorities. It means asking me to think about my ambitions, considering my motives, overturning any patterns of sin. It, it, it might be pretty radical. It might be that this disruptive Jesus turns over my, me in my comfort zone and, and relocates me somewhere, asks me to do something that is, is kind of challenging. I'm, I'm reading the book of Jeremiah this week in my own personal devotions. Man, I feel bad for that guy. God messed his life up. Everything was going pretty well until God showed up. Now, please don't misunderstand me. Uh, what God called him to was wonderful. It was epic, but it was dangerous. It was disruptive. The disciples didn't just get Jesus blessing them. He reordered their existence, and they paid the ultimate price. I wonder, do we still let Jesus disrupt us? We sometimes say, who do you think you are? And of course, what these guys didn't realize is that Jesus didn't only own the temple. <laughs> He's the son of God. He owns the universe. And the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were brought with a price. Here's a question that I've been wrestling with. Can Jesus still disrupt my life? Am I still available to that wonderful disruption? Secondly, we, we, we learn from this that Jesus is the answer, but he doesn't always answer our questions. Jesus is the answer, but he doesn't always answer our questions. They ask him about John, and Jesus replied, or they ask him whose authority he's in, and Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. 
John's baptism, was it from heaven or from human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe in him? Or believe him. But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Notice that Jesus didn't answer them, but he responded with a question. Now, by the way, folks, that's typical Jewish teaching style. You ask a rabbi a question, and he will often answer with a question. Famously, someone said to a rabbi, why do you always, why do you always answer a question with a question? And he said, so what's wrong with a question? <laughs> you got there, well done. Jesus didn't answer. Now, there were specific reasons for that. He knew their motives. He knew they were trying to trap him. And he brilliantly exposed them. If they said that John was from God, then they should have repented. If they said he wasn't, then the, the people with whom John was very popular would have risen up against them. And so he doesn't, he doesn't answer their questions. I wish Jesus would always answer my questions. When I became a Christian, I had all the answers. Does anyone identify with this? I, I, you know, ask me any question, pain, suffering, second coming, future of the universe, easy. I, I've, I've been a Christian for a while now. Does anyone else relate to this? The further I go on with Jesus, the less I realize I know. And I want to say, while not in any sense not encouraging us to go deeper in our faith and wrestle with deep issues, I want to say that sometimes God's not going to answer our questions, and that's okay. Some of us today need to make friends with mystery. Some of us perhaps need to know today that it's okay not to know. And I want to slow down for a moment and realize that even as I say that, that some listening to what I've just said, right now you are in such a valley of difficulty and you would love to know why. And I get that. But I have to be faithful to what I understand about Jesus from Scripture, from experience, and say, there are times when he doesn't answer the question. One day, perhaps, we'll know. I've often said, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him about this, 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 and this. How many know that's probably very, very stupid? <laughs> but it's okay not to know. Thirdly, he is perfect and patient and loving with it. He's perfect and patient and loving with it. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the, the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. 
He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Would you do a bit of work with me here? Because we, to understand what's going on here, we need to, to understand a bit of the, the, the backdrop. First of all, this was a very familiar story in Israel in that day. Uh, there were absentee landlords of huge estates, and uh, landless tenant farmers were very common in Galilee in Jesus' day. And they were usually expected to turn over 25 to 50% of their crop to the absentee landlord, uh, often living near starvation as a result. There was a lot of resentment. So this story touched a nerve. Uh, secondly, this was a very familiar story. As Jesus tells this story, these scribes, these Pharisees, these members of the Sanhedrin, they would have immediately remembered Isaiah chapter 5, which is about Israel's rejection of God. I will sing for the one I love. This is Isaiah 5, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. They, then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. And so it goes on. And at the time of Jesus, uh, many of the commentators then would have considered that that prophecy of Isaiah had been fulfilled in 586 BC, that, that temple's destruction. So this was a familiar story in the culture. It's a familiar story in history. Thirdly, the vine or the vineyard was a symbol for Israel. Uh, the coins had a vine on them. Jeremiah chapter 2, I planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. Not only that, fourthly, but right where Jesus was standing, within a few yards in the entrance over the door to the Holy of Holies was a huge 100-foot-high grapevine sculpture. So we've got to understand when we hear these words that that's, that's the audio-visual audio backdrop of this, this piece of teaching. What, what's going on here is that Jesus is making it really clear that Israel is the vine. God has been patient. He has sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And now he's sent his beloved son. Within 72 hours, these guys will organize his death and throw him outside the city wall. What's going on here is that Jesus is talking about this resistance to God ongoingly, but also, we've got to say, the patience of God. I mean, the story is shocking. Those listening to it would have said, well, why didn't the landowner come and throw those tenants out long before? And to leave a corpse unburied was the ultimate insult. Jesus is talking here about hard hearts and a patient God. I, I, I got a question. Has God been repeatedly trying to get our attention? Maybe, maybe you're not a Christian tonight or, or you're not sure where you stand with God. Have you, have you discovered, think about your own life right now. There have been moments where you kind of prayed a weird prayer and 
something happened, you said, oh, well, it's coincidence. Or your heart started to beat a little faster during the worship song. Or from a couple of different directions, people have been saying the same thing to you. And through the unfolding story that is your life, God, if I may put it like this, has been sending messenger after messenger after messenger to you. I want you to know today that the ultimate messenger is Jesus. God sent his beloved son and we struck him about the head and he was crucified. But he is raised from the dead. He is alive. I want you to know that in a few moments from now there will be an opportunity perhaps for us not to send him away but to say, yeah, I want to respond. I hear your voice. Has God been trying to get our attention? The fourth thing is that Jesus is making a comeback when every knee will bow. Jesus is making a comeback when every knee will bow. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone the Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I had a really embarrassing experience yesterday. Two embarrassing experiences. How many find this difficult to believe? <laughs> First of all, I had a lunch appointment yesterday. I showed up at the restaurant on time. I like to be on time. And uh, eight or nine minutes later, I looked at my smartphone and realized that I was on time for my lunch appointment it's just I was in the wrong restaurant, which was eight miles away. If that's not bad enough for one day, I then later went through a Starbucks drive-through the wrong way. <laughs> oh, yeah. I am not making this up. My wife will testify to this. She testified to it yesterday with high-pitched squealing. <laughs> I saw this sign. It said, exit only. So I said, it's okay, honey. That area there is for exiting only. We'll go through there. And verily, verily, we did go through there. Helpfully, thank God. No one was coming the other way, desperate for a cappuccino. <laughs> the Starbucks staff were a little surprised as I sped past them. <laughs> I know, it's a gift. <laughs> I misread the sign. This passage has been misread repeatedly. Uh, preachers get a hold of this passage and they rush to the second coming, the second coming of Jesus. They think it's about that. It is not. It is not. By the way, can I just say, in a culture that kind of has been obsessed with what's happening in the future, the 2013 Mayan thing and all of that, uh, anytime anyone sets a date for Jesus coming back, it's wrong. No, can we, can we stop doing that stuff? 
Can we, can we grow up and graduate beyond some of that foolishness? That's, that's wrong. Specifically, this refers very clearly, if you look at the context, precisely what Jesus is saying, where he's saying it, what follows. He's talking about the fall of the temple in A.D. 70, when the vineyard will be opened up to others. By the way, that's us, the Gentiles. We're in this story. It's amazing, really. All of that said, let's never forget that there is a big event coming. Jesus is coming back. And we argue about that, and we, we, there's endless books about it, speculating about what means this and this means that. And we take the book of Revelation, which is written as a pastoral letter, never offered as a timetable, and we completely misuse apocalyptic literature, but we miss the message that Jesus is coming back. And just as these religious barons were hearing about the fall of the temple that would happen before a generation passed away, so we need to understand that God has not finished with this planet yet. And I don't know what it really looks like to live in the light of the second coming. I don't... Can I be honest with you? I, I, I'm still trying to figure that out. I hear preachers say, live in the light of eternity. And I think, yeah, but what does that mean? You know, I, I, I don't want to die today. I, don't, people, people, I say that and people say, don't you want to go see Jesus? No. <laughs> Not right now. Nor do you. You say, well, the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, good for him. <laughs> I'm not there. I, I don't wake up in the morning and go, whoa, I may die today. Bring it on, baby. <laughs> so I don't really know what, what, what I can pray is even so, come, Lord Jesus, and establish your rule and your reign and show me when my head is down what it means to live in the light of the big story that Christ will come again. Last, the last truth we learn from this story, there are many, but what we're going to consider today is that religion should carry a health warning. Religion should carry a health warning. Look at the response of these guys. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Who wants to be a Pharisee? Anyone? I spoke to my oldest grandson, Stanley, this afternoon on Skype. He's going to a birthday party tomorrow. It's a pirate birthday party. British four-year-old kids are obsessed with piracy. He's going to dress up and he's got the hat and the sword. They don't go to Pharisee parties. They never want to be Pharisees. <laughs> Pirates, yeah. Sounds good. No one thinks they're a Pharisee. No one aspires to be a Pharisee. But we've got to understand that just as religion was dangerous for these guys and it made them arrogant and proud and territorial and, and hard-hearted, so that can be in us. I'm going to make a confession of sin. Some of you are sitting up right now. I'm ashamed to tell you about something. 
I was back in England over Christmas, and on Christmas Eve, we go to the midnight service at a little church down the lane from where our apartment is there. There are no street lights. The villagers go down the lane with torches, flashlights, and it's, there's tiki torches at the church, as I say, a thousand years old. And the church is a denomination that is not familiar to me. And the style is different. And the preacher has a voice a bit like this, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and as I sat in there, waiting for the service to start, I'm embarrassed and ashamed to tell you that I was getting ready to be irritated. <laughs> I hadn't planned to do this. I don't know where this is coming from. <laughs> or indeed, where it's going. <laughs> and the priest came out, and he stood there in his, his, his ornate robes. And, and something in me, because it wasn't my tradition, I wasn't comfortable with it. So I, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but I'm thinking, right, stand by to be irritated <laughs> and offended. And I was ready. And the service went on. And I'm going to stop doing that. And then it got to the sermon, and I thought, ah, I'm sure this sermon's going to be nebulous, wishy-washy stuff. Guess what happened? The sermon was brilliant. But here's what I'm really afraid to tell you. I actually found myself disappointed to not be irritated. I'm like, that was great. Oh, dear. And I came out of the church, and I shook hands with the vicar, and I said, thank you, what a fabulous sermon, and he smiled. I walked back up the lane Christmas Eve. I thought, what kind of messed up thing is that where religion can turn you into thinking that your way, your style, your songs, your attitude, your tradition, that's the right way. But anybody else's way. And I said, God, don't let the yeast, the leaven, the influence of the Pharisees be in me. How about you? Who do you think you are? they said, but they just didn't realize who they were dealing with. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, as we, as we reflect on this story today, we see that you, Jesus, don't come to be our coach or our advisor, our consultant, but you come as the one with authority to be our Lord. You come with your kingdom, which means that we place ourselves under the leadership and authority of the king. And so now, Lord, as we reflect in these moments, be with us.
speak to us. As our heads are bowed today, I'm going to do two things. First of all, I want to give an invitation to those who want to respond because when I was talking about God doing stuff in your life to try and get your attention, and I was saying, what's it going to take to get your attention? There are some of us who want to respond to that, either because you'd like to become a Christian. You know that, you know in your heart of hearts, there may be lots of questions, but you know that God has been pursuing you, working in you, and he's looking for your response. It may be that you're a long way from God at the moment, and you know he's been pursuing you, and he's looking for your response. So if either of those two apply to you as our heads are bowed, can I just ask that you just slip up your hand for a moment, please, because you're wanting to say, yes, I respond to him. And I can see hands, and that is so wonderful. Please put your hands down. And why don't you just, right where you are, whisper to God, I want you. I want to respond. I don't want to send you away. I say yes to you, Lord. Be Lord, be King, take charge. And then, Lord, we pray as well today for those who are walking in the place where they don't understand what's going on and mystery has become their companion. May they know today that it's okay not to know. That one day, Christ will come and we will see clearly Him, which ultimately is all that matters. Finally, Lord, as we pray together today, and we think about religion carrying a health warning, God, save us from attitudes that can spring up in our religiosity. We don't want to be those who plan to bring you down with our attitudes, consciously or unconsciously. We, we don't want to be those who are looking for something to be mad about. We don't want to be those who are arrogant. So work in us, we pray. We give you thanks in Jesus' name.